Father, we uh, love the fact that the cross of Jesus Christ is the reason that we are alive, that your blood has set us free, and that there's nothing in this world that can ever lessen or diminish the power of what you did on that cross for us. And we're so grateful, Lord, as we turn our hearts and minds to study that tonight. I pray, Father, that you would guide us, that you would speak to us, that you would draw us closer to you. Help us, Lord, to see more of what he has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot of places in Scripture that we tend to turn to on Good Friday, uh, like the prayer in the garden, and after Jesus' prayer in the garden where he submitted himself to the will of our Father, then he was arrested. Remember, Judas came up, kissed him on the cheek, and he looked at him, he said, you betray the Son of Man, you're he was arrested. I like John's gospel of his arrest. They come and they say, um, oh, I'm, I'm, I can't brain. Uh, they come and they say, he said, who are you looking for? And they say, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And all of the guards, they all get knocked down and they all fall backwards. And it's just this beautiful scene. So they stand back up and he asks them again, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I told you, I'm he. And in that whole process, though, he's arrested, he's beaten, he's mocked, he is tried, he is condemned. And when we pay attention to that, all of it was illegal. All of his trial was illegal. According to Jewish law, you couldn't have a trial at night. According to Jewish law, you could not condemn someone based on their own words. It's actually where we get our Fifth Amendment from. Right? So all of these things are taking place. All of these things are happening. All of these things are illegal. They don't care. They take him to Pilate. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate goes out before all of them and says, he hasn't done anything wrong. I find nothing wrong in him. What do you want me to do with him? They said, crucify him. They said, why should we crucify him? He hasn't done anything. And at that time, remember, they, it's a custom to release a prisoner. He said, so well, who do you want me to release? Barabbas, interesting name, means son of the father, who was a, a murderer. Or Jesus, your king. And they said, give us Barabbas. And he said, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they said, crucify him. And over and over and over, Matthew's gospel Pilate's wife sends him a, a note and says, hey, I had a dream about this guy. Leave this alone. But all of this took place. And of course, through the whole thing, even though Jesus was completely innocent, he made no defense. He made no defense. At one point in time, Pilate looked at him and he said, don't you know I have the power to kill you? Or release you? And Jesus said, you'd have no power at all if it wasn't given to you by my Father. Which is a pretty bold thing to say. It's true. And, and over and over, Pilate comes back and is like, give me a reason to let you go. But Jesus could make no defense. We're told about this in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed 
and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, even though Jesus was completely innocent, he did not defend himself because he wasn't dying for his sins. He was dying for ours. And he couldn't defend our sins. So he died for it. That leads us to Luke chapter 23, where we pick up in verse 26. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? So the Romans take hold of a guy by the name of Simon to carry his cross. And Simon's an interesting character. He had two kids. Um, one of them's name is Rufus. I don't remember the other one uh, off the top of my head. But they apparently got saved because they get mentioned in one of the epistles. This cross beam, it would have been the horizontal beam, not the vertical beam. Um, it would have weighed in excess of 100 pounds. And after a night of being beaten, the crown of thorns, not sleeping, uh, uh, all of these things, I, I can only imagine how hard it would be to pick up a 100-pound beam. So they ask, they have Simon help him. And at this time, Jesus speaks to the women who were mourning for him. And this was common practice. Women would line the road, people in general would lie in the road and then they would pray for the people who were going out to be crucified. Um, in this, Jesus predicts Jerusalem's destruction. And it carries with it some end times prophecy a bit as well, uh, as these words are repeated by those being judged by God in the book of Revelation. However, we take it, Jesus is telling them, this is what they do in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry. And this has two possible meanings. The first is, is if, the, if this is what the Romans will do to the innocent, Jesus, what will they do to the guilty? Speaking of Rome's destruction of Jerusalem, which would happen in you know, 40 years, give or take. The second is, the second interpretation, if this is what is done to Jesus when he came to offer truth, peace, and salvation, what will be done to all of them, not just Jerusalem, but all of them, when God's judgment falls? In either case, I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end. So we pick up in verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led away with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him. 
coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. So they arrived at the hill called Calvary. We also know it as Golgotha or the place of the skull. And they crucified Jesus along with two other criminals. We're going to see Jesus pray for them. And more prophecy is fulfilled. It's interesting to me that scripture gives us three little words. They crucified him. Three little words. We know the horrors of crucifixion. It's been said that it is one of, if not the most painful way a person could die. You know, they, they say they nailed him to a cross, but these would have been three, four, five inch long, inch thick iron spikes. Not what we think of as nails. When they would go through the wrist, right where those two bones meet, you know, it would sever the nerves, causing just horrible pain. You'd have to push up on the nail in your feet to take a breath, because hanging there, it would cause your shoulders to dislocate. And actually, people typically suffocated as their bodies were pulled out of joint. Horrible way to die. Hebrews 12.2 gives us this commentary on the horrible death of Christ. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And I know I've mentioned this before, but it's so important to me to bring it up. What was the joy that was set before him? I'm going to give you a clue. If you look to your right, unless there's nobody on your right, and you can look to your left, you can look up here. We are that joy. We are the joy. He looked ahead and he saw, I believe, the people knowing that people would believe in what he did and as a result of it, they'd repent of their sins and be saved. And when he looked at those nails and he looked at that wood and he looked at that crown of thorns and then he looked at us. And to him, that was joy. He endured that cross and despised the shame. He prays for them. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And this is the compassion of Jesus who did not come to condemn the world but to save it, according to John 3.17. They didn't really know what they were doing or who they were doing it to. That's explained in Acts 3.17. But Jesus here is practicing the forgiveness that he taught us about in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught us to forgive others. We're commanded in Colossians, or not Colossians, in Ephesians 4.32, to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. And so he showed us what that looked like. He prayed for the forgiveness of those who were killing him. And he was dying so we could be forgiven before the Father. Should we not also offer that same forgiveness to those who have wronged us? 
And then he's mocked. He saved others. He could save himself. If you're a king, come down from the cross. Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of those who were mocking him. The soldiers, the crowds, the religious leaders. This was our mockery. This is what we deserve. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. And then we get this inscription. This is the king of the Jews. Written in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. That way, everyone who was there, who could read, would be able to read it. Because Greek was the common language of the Roman Empire by this time. But the Romans would read Latin. And the, the Jewish folks would read Hebrew. So he puts it up there in every language that was popular at the time. Now, usually the accusation was written above the person being crucified. So the criminals next to him maybe had murderer or thief inscribed above them. But Pilate, you have to keep in mind, you know, this was probably etched into a piece of wood of some way, shape, or form. This is the king of the Jews. Now, we know from other Gospels that he did this to mock the Jewish leaders who turned Jesus over for jealousy. And when they protested the statement in John 19, Pilate responded with, what I have written, I have written. I don't wonder if Pilate didn't have a little bit of insight. Probably should have acted on it, but he had a little bit of insight. Verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We know from the other Gospels that at some point both criminals were mocking Jesus. And then somewhere along the way, the Holy Spirit started working in this man's heart. And one of the criminals changes his mind. He cries out to Jesus for salvation. So it begins with mocking. One of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him and said, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. I can all, it's such pride and foolishness this would take to mock him in that way when you're dying right next to him. Something that's interesting those who were standing around the cross made this same mockery. Save yourself. 
You saved others, save yourself. Here, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But he couldn't do it. Want to know why? He couldn't save himself and save others. It was one or the other. And he loved us so much, he wanted to save us. So he didn't save himself. Oh, he could have. Remember when he was arrested? He told Peter after Peter pulled out the sword, don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels? They're just waiting to come and put a stop to this. All I got to do is say the word, 12 legions of angels. Now a legion was four to 6,000 troops back then. So 12 legions of angels, 50, 60,000 angels were waiting in the Old Testament, one angel wiped out 140,000 Assyrian troops in one night. One angel. Could you imagine what 60,000 angels could do? But he never called on them. So then we see this criminal. He rebukes the other guy, and then he makes these honest acknowledgments, which I think are beautiful. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And we justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And so we must put ourselves in this man's place. This was our condemnation. This is the wage we all deserve for our sin. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, took our place. And so this criminal rebuked the other for his mockery. He acknowledged that his punishment was just. And we must all acknowledge the same thing. Our own sin before God. And then we cry out to him for salvation the same way this guy did. I kind of wish they'd given us his name. I feel bad about calling him this guy. And then we see salvation. He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And this is so beautiful to me. First, how did the criminal know Jesus is Lord? He was being crucified right next to him. For all he knew that, how did he know? How did he know that he was innocent? Right? Because the guy on the other side certainly wasn't innocent. This guy said so. This guy, we're going to call him Bill from now on. Right? So, so Bill looks at the other criminal and goes, no, 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 he's innocent. We're, we deserve this. We've done it wrong, but he's innocent. How did he know he was innocent? It says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How did Bill know? that Jesus was going to come into a kingdom. He was dying right next to him. And the only answer that makes sense to me is that the Holy Spirit was at work, convicting him of sin, righteousness, and judgment, revealing things to him that he had no other way to know. Second, this man was promised promised that he would be with Jesus in paradise that very day. We need to note a couple things. 
How many good works did he do before he died? Zero. Was he baptized? Right? Did somebody run up there and throw a bucket of water on him while he was hanging on the cross? No. Wasn't baptized. Did he ever sign an agreement with church doctrine? You ever been at a church that asked you to do that? You have to sign something where you agree with their doctrine? Did he join a church? Did he attend church? What did he do in order to be saved? He admitted his sins and cried out to Jesus. That's the gospel. That's all there is to it. And Jesus' response, today you will be with me in paradise. Romans 10, 11 through 13 tells us, For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This man was, Bill, was hanging next to Jesus, naked on a cross. And he cries out to Jesus, and Jesus says, no shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we pick up in verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with, on the next page, sorry, when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts in return. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So from the sixth to the ninth hour, which in our time frame would be somewhere around noon until 3 p.m., darkness covered the earth as the Father turned his eyes away from Jesus for the first and only time in history. God the triune God was temporarily separated as Jesus had to exit the presence of his Father to take our sin. Habakkuk 1.13 backs that up for us, that God's eyes are so holy and so pure they cannot look upon sin. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't know that he sinned. He knows. Believe me, he knows. But he couldn't watch. Jesus couldn't be in presence of the Father while well that'll be fun on a recording while he took our sin upon himself and once this was done we see Jesus willingly give his life for us we'll get there the veil of the temple was torn in two it's one of the next things we see 
And that is fantastic. If you remember when the tabernacle was set up and then the temple, they put this veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. In the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, surrounded by the cherubim. The high priest was allowed to go in there one time per year, only after making the proper sacrifice. And they actually used to tie a rope around the high priest's ankle when he would go into the Holy of Holies, because if he had done something that displeased God, and God struck him dead while he was in the Holy of Holies, they couldn't go in and get him. So they'd have a rope around his ankle so they could drag him back out. But what that showed us was that there was a separation between God and human beings. Right? You could not just walk in. The tearing of the veil shows us that that separation between God and humans had been bridged by Jesus, making the way for all who would come through him, the door and only way, according to John 10, 7 and 14, 6, that all who would come through him could come to the Father. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says this, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, every one of us is born with an innate desire to know God. And, and human beings have turned that into all kinds of stuff over the centuries and millennia, right? They, they bow down to little statues or they worship a tree or, or they, they take a tree and they make a little statue. And it's one of my favorite places in the book of Isaiah. He goes, he says, you go out and you cut down a tree. And with part of it, you carve a little God. And then part of it, you bake your bread. You're baking your bread with the same wood that you're bowing down and worshiping. But Jesus made it possible so God doesn't have to be a mystery to us. I mean, certainly, there's things about him we're not going to know. There's things that he's kept to himself, and I'm okay with that. It's going to be a great surprise when we get to heaven. But we can know him, the one true God. The disciples at one point in time looked at Jesus and said, what do we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God. To know him. And the one that he has sent me. Not me, but Jesus said that. And so he made the way. The veil being torn showed us that. Then he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. No one took Jesus' life. He willingly gave it for us. John 10, 17 through 18 says, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received. When the centurion saw what happened, he glorified God and said, certainly this was a righteous man. 
Some of the Gospels actually report the centurion saying, surely this was the Son of God. I believe it's Mark's Gospel. Even an unbelieving soldier glorified God and recognized Jesus in him. And so the whole crowd came together to that site, seeing what had been done, they beat their breasts and returned. And the beating of the chest was actually a sign of repentance in their culture and a recognition of guilt, like the tax collector in Luke 18, 13. Remember, the Pharisee stood in the temple and said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give 10% of all that. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. The tax collector stood far off. And he wouldn't even lift up his eyes, but instead he beat his chest and said, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what that meant in that culture. And so there were plenty there. When they saw all that took place, they went, something about this ain't right. But all his acquaintances, and the women who followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these The only thing I could come up with, and maybe you have a better answer as to why that's in there, is that they were certainly afraid of suffering a similar fate, which explains the distance, but they were there. They were eyewitnesses to this taking place, which is beautiful because eyewitnesses were evidence and proof. We're going to talk a little bit more about that on Sunday. They saw this happen. And some of them wrote it down for us. So as we close, the question is, why? Why Good Friday? Why do we celebrate his death? Why would he do this for us? The answer is, I'm trying to be all dramatic, and I realize it's on the screen behind me, isn't it? <laughs> Ooh, the suspense. The answer is, it always has been, and it always will be love. It will always be love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. God's love for us demonstrated in allowing his son to die for us sinners, according to Romans 5.8, so that we could be forgiven and saved. This is why. Love is why. Our salvation and reconciliation to God is why. For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that. And so then my question is, is do you believe it? If you're online, if you're joining us here tonight, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the only Son of God, God in the flesh, who lived a perfect life, who died a substitutionary death for us, and who rose from the dead, and that whoever calls on his name will be saved? If somebody's watching or somebody's here doesn't know that, let us help you know that. Send me a message, leave me a comment, or grab me after service. I would love to talk to you about that. For those of us who do know him, are you living your life in accordance with that belief?
and by the power of God's Spirit. You can deal with that between you and God as time goes on. Now, as we close, I have a rule. I have a rule in my own life that I have practiced for as long as I've been a Christian. And that is I will never read about the crucifixion of Christ without reading about the resurrection. I know it's Good Friday, but it just bugs me. I'm like, no, I can't leave him there. <laughs> I mean, I know he didn't stay there, but personally, I just can't leave him there. Because it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And in Luke 24, the first six verses, it says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to him, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Oh, the glory of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who Jesus is, for all that he's done for us, for the great love that you've shown us in sending your one and only son to be sin for us so that we could be clothed in his righteousness, washed in his blood, forgiven and set free. Lord, we call it Good Friday because it's good for us. What he did is all about our good. And we thank you for that truth. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.